Good morning. It is always good to be with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment where we can gather together as your people. We can sing. We can pray. We can partake in the meal that binds our hearts together into you. And now, God, we open our hearts to your word. And we pray that we would be open to receive it, that we would be open to the the words of comfort we encounter and the words of challenge that we hear. God, we thank you for this constant invitation to begin again, to start new. We thank you for the resurrection. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I was in 10th grade and living in Sacramento, California, kind of in the heart of the city. And I woke up one morning at sunrise, which was not my custom in 10th grade, to the unexpected sound, but the undeniable sound of a rooster. And this, this went on for six consecutive days. Sunrise, we've got great sound effects going on in the, in the room right now. Don't, please don't leave if your baby's crying. So six days in a row. Sunrise, rooster, wake up, and every morning my dad comes to me angry about it to tell me that I need to do something about it. What am I going to do about it? So it happens on Saturday morning, and he drags me out of bed and says, I want you to go out in the backyard right now and figure out which one of our neighbors doesn't care about the rest of us. So I kind of drag myself out to the backyard, and I look up over the side neighbor. No, no rooster. I go to the other side, no rooster. So I go to the back fence, and I kind of peek up over the fence, and there's this rooster strutting around this, this yard. So we have found the neighbors that don't care about the rest of us, as my dad says. And so I go back in, and I say, it's our, it's our back door neighbors. And he says, okay, well, get yourself pulled together. We're going over there, and we're having a chat. This is what you want, right, from, from the neighbor that's a preacher to come over to you early on Saturday morning with his son to talk to you about your rooster. My mom tries to talk him out of it. My sisters try to talk him out of it. I try to talk him out of it. None, he's not listening to any of us. So we go over to our neighbor's house. We knock on the door. My dad tries to be as pleasant as he can. And he starts to launch into this carefully crafted complaint to this woman. Her name's Carrie. She introduces herself. She even invites us in. And I'm getting increasingly uncomfortable because I know the speech that my dad's going to give her because he's been practicing it as we walked around the block. And none of it's nice. And I don't know why, but before he can talk about her rooster, she asks him what he does for a living. So we're in this, this lady's living room for an hour, and my dad keeps trying to bring up the rooster, and he keeps failing because Carrie keeps asking us more and more questions about uh, us and our family and kind of what we do, and, and the more that my dad talks about being a minister, it becomes apparent that Carrie needs a minister, and she keeps calling my dad pastor, and, and she keeps telling him different things about our life, and over the course of an hour, I, I find out that She's just been laid off, and she doesn't know 
what, what she's going to do for a job, and her husband isn't making enough to really make ends meet, and they have a six-year-old daughter who's having major trouble at school. In fact, they, they had just that week had a meeting with the school administrators who were talking about possibly kicking her out of school, and then they have a slightly older son, a 15-year-old, who had just run away from home. And, and as my dad listens to her, and I watch him, he realizes he's never going to get to bring the rooster up. And then she says to him, I really feel like when you walk through my front door, God walked through my front door. I, I, need, I need help. And I need you to pray for me, Pastor. Will you pray for me? And so my dad prays for Carrie. And, you know, this is Saturday morning. And the very next morning, she and her daughter are at church. I mean, I'd never seen a faster turnaround in my life. And somehow, my dad brought up the rooster in the next couple of weeks, and that went away as well. And, and it was this amazing moment. We have these moments. They're usually unexpected like that, where we're not, we're, we're not really sure of what's happening right when it begins to unfold. But you and I have moments where we see God step into somebody's life and turn everything around. And, and every time we witness that, we are witnessing how the resurrection actually happens, if we'll let it. If, if we'll get out of the way, if we'll put our, our personal preferences and, and the things that, that we chase after that really don't have anything to do with connecting with other people and loving other people and living the kinds of lives Jesus has called us to live, if we'll get out of the way and let that happen, new life, it, it takes shape. For the past month, we have been, as a church, reflecting on how we can open our lives up to this ongoing miracle of the resurrection. We've, we've talked about how it, it's not just one thing, it's lots of different things that the resurrection is able to recreate in us. It can give us a, a new sense of, of sight, eyes that see people through grace. It can give us a new sense of hearing, ears that that listen to people with compassion. It can give us a new sense of touch, arms and, and hands that reach out to embrace other people, sometimes even people we don't understand or agree with. Last week we talked about it giving us a new sense of taste, that we, we can be people who slow down and savor the goodness that God puts in our life. And this morning, I, I can't preach on a new sense of smell. I can't do it. I, I've been wrestling with it. The whole series, I can't talk about a resurrection nose. I've, I've tried to make that sound deep and life-changing, and I can't do it. So I just need to confess that to you. So instead of chuckling my way through a sermon on a new way of smelling like Jesus, we're going to talk about a different sense entirely. Our sense of self. Because we don't just want new eyes and ears and hands and, and a new sense of taste. We, we want to be entirely new people. And the resurrection, and only the resurrection, offers us that opportunity. I, I know in my life, the older I get, that it's, it's not just that I want different parts of my life to be just a little bit different. I, I, want, I want a new life. I want God to give me a new heart. King David 
was that kind of person. Over and over in scripture, we find David described as someone whose heart chases after God's heart. And then there's all kinds of images we're given to understand what what does it look like for someone's heart to chase after God's heart? Well, when he's just a boy, he protects these helpless sheep from predators that that are constantly coming after them. He, he protects people, right, who can't protect themselves. That's, that's something that's in his heart from the very beginning, and it's going to be something that's in his heart as a king of God's people, as a shepherd of God's people. He, even while he's still young, he faces down this intimidating, threatening giant that nobody else has the courage to face down because he believes not only is he called to defend the people of Israel, he is called to defend the honor of God's name. And so he, he finds a way to trust when no one else can trust that this is who God is calling them to be. And then as time passes, King Saul, who needed David to defeat the giant, suddenly realizes that David might be more popular and important than him to a lot of the people in Israel. And he starts to lose it because of his jealousy and, and, and his envy and, and all the strife that that brings up in his heart. And David shows Saul mercy and grace and understanding that doesn't make sense to anyone else who's watching. I mean, Saul is literally hunting David down to kill him, and David repays that evil with goodness. And, and time after time, we, we understand, we get insight into what does it look like to be somebody who's, whose heart is chasing after God's heart. But that wasn't always the case. David, as good as he is, isn't perfect. So we find a very particular chapter in his life that opens up. It it opens up on an evening when King David can't sleep. I, I don't know why he can't sleep. Maybe it's because the air's a little too warm or his mind is filled with too many anxious thoughts. Your guess is as good as mine, but... He can't go to sleep, and he's restless, so he gets up, and he walks along the roof of his royal palace, and he looks down in the surrounding neighborhoods, and he sees a woman bathing in a courtyard, a private courtyard in her house, and he knows that she's beautiful, and he knows that that he needs to stop staring. He knows what God would ask him to do, what God would have him do, and he keeps staring anyway. And then he sends his servants to go get her, and then he commits adultery with her, and then he sends her back home, and he finds out that she's pregnant, and so then he sends word to his military leaders to make sure that her husband loses his life while he's fighting on the front lines. It, it's an amazing implosion of a life that up to that point has been an amazing example of what it means to be a person whose heart is open to the heart of God. We we don't see David having a heart that's chasing after God's heart here. He's, He's running away from God's heart. He's doing the opposite of what God would have him do. And he's trying to hide from God, but you and I know that's not how things work when it comes to our relationship with God. God not only sees what David is doing, God sees why. And he knows that he has 
he started to believe in the lie that is the king, as, as the, the human being in Israel with the most power, that he has the right to take anything and anyone he wants, anytime he wants it, because he's the king. Worse than that, when David sends this letter to his military general and tells him, I want you to, to take this woman's husband and I want you to put him out on the front lines and then I want you to withdraw and I want you to let him get killed, David has the audacity to say to this guy, now I know it's going to seem like that's the wrong thing, like it's evil, but I'm the king and I'm telling you, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. David actually thinks that as the king of Israel, he has the power to decide what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. And he is sorely mistaken. Nobody gets to make those decisions except for God and God alone. And that's when God sends Nathan, his prophet, to wake David up. To help David see a truth he doesn't want to see. I think to help David see a truth he probably couldn't see even if he wanted to see it. He has lost not just his direction, he has lost not just his way. David in this story has lost himself. He's lost his heart. He doesn't know what's going on. He certainly doesn't know who he actually is, not anymore. And so Nathan comes and speaks the truth to him, this, this painful truth. And he does it with a very simple story about this rich man who owns countless sheep. And when he has an unexpected guest show up, he, he steals a pet sheep from a neighboring poor man. It's the only sheep he has. This rich man steals that sheep and slaughters it for his friend. And when David's listening to this story, he is filled with anger. And he, through clenched teeth, says, this, this is wrong. And this man, this, this callous, merciless rich man who stole this sheep from this, this poor man, he deserves to die. He should have to pay four times the value of the life of that lamb because of, of what he did and, and because he did it with no pity. And I have to believe that with tears filling his eyes, the prophet Nathan says quietly to David, don't you see? Don't you understand this story? David, you're, you're the calloused, merciless, rich man. This story isn't about anybody but you. You took the wife and the life of a good man simply because you could, simply because you wanted to, and because you thought as king you had the right to. This isn't who you are. This isn't who you are. And now because of what you've done, you and your children are going to suffer the consequences of living a life that's more about what you want, more about your heart than God's heart. And somehow, in the midst of that confrontation, David finds a way to listen to the truth and to see the truth, and he is undone. He'd give anything to take back the crimes that he's committed. He'd, he'd give anything to see himself in a different light, because he knows it's not just what he's done, it's, it's what the things he's done, who they've turned him into. He's ashamed. He's, 
He's horrified. He's terrified. And he does the only thing he knows to do. He, he stops running from God. He stops hiding from God, or at least trying to hide from God. And he opens his heart again to God's heart. And he speaks words of a prayer that try to speak the truth without, without any spin, right? He's done telling himself all the lies that, that we tell ourselves to justify selfish actions and, and behaviors, right? He's done with that. He just, he tries to tell the truth as directly as he can without any spin. And he, he realizes the only hope he has, the only, the only thing he can place any real trust in at this moment is not in his own sense of right and wrong. It's not in his own sense of self. It's in letting God define and what he hopes is not just define, but redefine, to recreate who he is all the way down. If you've got your Bible, open up to Psalm 51. We're going to read his prayer together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he's not, he's not saying that his sin hasn't hurt other people. What he's confessing here is when, as king, I decided I had the power to name something good or evil, that I don't have that power. Only you have that power, God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Hopefully none of us in this room has ever stolen someone else's spouse. Hopefully no one in this room has ordered the death of somebody in this life. And I'm guessing that most of us, though some of us might, most of us probably don't have quite the gift that King David has with poetic language. But you and I do know what it feels like for this prayer, for his prayer, to be our prayer. We know what it's like to suddenly wake up and see that the mess that we've made of things, not only in our life, but in the lives of of others, maybe it was giving in to, to greed, maybe it's losing your temper, maybe it's pursuing even more power, maybe it's ignoring the very real needs of others because of selfish desires. Whatever it, whatever it was, the, the wreckage is always unmistakable when we live for what we want and only what we want. 
And it's in those moments, it's when we're ready to say the kind of prayer that David says here, that we realize that we don't just need a little change to happen in our hearts. We need entirely brand new hearts. A heart that chases once again after God's heart. That The thing is, no matter how much we want, we want for it to be different, you and I don't have the power that it's going to take to make that miracle happen on our own. We need God's help. We have, to, we have to ask for it. We have to be open to it. We have to, to confess our need for it. We, we have to cooperate with it. And that is going to take humility. It's going to take honesty. It, it takes us realizing our own limitations to not only fail to always do the right thing, but to admit beyond that, there are many times we don't even want to do the right thing, the good thing, the godly thing. We, we can't get there with, with a new set of behaviors alone. It can only be sustained with a new set of desires. Now, now, don't get me wrong here. There are definitely times, there have to be times in our lives where we, we do something, we act in a way that is contrary to what we want in the moment. Because we know, we're aware enough that what we want in the moment is not good, it's not godly, it's not healthy, it's not wholesome, and so even though it's something that we desire, we choose to do the right thing. That's a part of our spiritual maturity. It's a part of that journey of, of becoming more and more who God wants us to be. But what I have found in my life and in the lives of others is this, that, that ultimately a forced change of behavior is not sustainable. Not on its own. What we actually need is for God to recreate our hearts so that we want to do what God is calling us to do. We, we need a better set of desires so that we can faithfully live out a better set of, of behaviors. And I think too often in our lives, we give up on God changing our hearts at that level. And we settle for behavior management. And all the while, we're still longing for things, we're still desiring things, we're wanting things that aren't good for us or anyone else. And I will promise you this much, those desires and longings, unless God changes them, they will find a way to express themselves in your life. They will. You notice, David's prayer is not, God, help me to just do the right thing. Give me the willpower to roll up my sleeves and fix all the things I've broken. That's not the kind of prayer that David offers here. It's not the kind of prayer we need to pray in those moments when we wake up and realize that we aren't anywhere close to being the kinds of people God is calling us to be, and in our very best selves, we long to be. David's prayer is, create a new heart. Give me a new set of desires. Help me want the things I need to want, that you need me to want, God. If church is just a way, if your relationship with God is just a way for you to get things that you know on a soul-deep level God has no interest in giving you, 
It doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter how many rules you follow. You're still going to be a self-focused, selfish person who happens to be really good at following religious laws. That's not the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is trusting that in coming to church and being a a part of a community and prayer and and an ongoing journey and relationship with God, that little by little, day after day, we will find, it's not just that we're in some sort of self-improvement process, we will find that God is working the miracle of resurrection in us and through us. And it isn't just a little change, we are completely new people. And it is not a change that any one of us gets to take credit for. We celebrate it. We partner with it. We cooperate with that power. But it is not a power that belongs to us. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a faithful spirit, right? A steadfast spirit within me. Help me have the right longings. Help me desire things that are life-giving to me and other people. Help, help me to realize that life is always about relationships, and it's not about accomplishments. It's not about me simply pleasing myself. It's about me finding new ways every single day to please God, to have a heart that chases after God's heart. And in order for that to happen, God's going to have to give us that heart. You remember Carrie, right, the the neighbor we had with the rooster when I was in 10th grade. Well, she starts coming to church that very next day, that very next Sunday, and she comes to church faithfully every time the, door, time the doors are open for the next six months, and then suddenly she stops coming. I mean, she stops coming as quickly as she had, she had started attending, and so my dad turns to me one evening, and he says to me, we need to go visit Carrie. Dad, I don't... You know, first we were going to go over there and lecture her about a rooster. And now you want to lecture her because she's not coming to church? Like, I, we got to find new ways to start conversations with this, this lady, right? My dad, well, we're going to go over there. So we knock on the door and she lets us in and it's awkward. And... And she starts to, to tell us how great things are going in her life. And, and just, just about the time she stopped coming to church, things in her life had, had gotten a whole lot better. She had found a new job, and it wasn't just a job, but it was a dream job that she'd always wanted. Her husband got a substantial raise at work, and so they now had far more financial resources than they'd ever had before. Her six-year-old daughter, who'd been having trouble at school, was, was thriving at school, and her son, who had run away from home, had come back. And she looked straight at my father. I will never forget this conversation, because I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking, okay... So God's been good to you, God's blessed you, and the way you respond is, is to stop being a part of God's people. I'm thinking that, I'm not saying it. And she says to my dad, I know this doesn't really make sense, and I know you're probably here because I've stopped coming to church, and I guess it just boils down to, I don't need God anymore. I mean, I needed God six months ago when things were bad, and... And I, I don't have any problem praying when I need help, but, you know, I, I was listening 
at church, and I was finding out more and more that if I, I learned who God wanted me to be, then I was going to have to try to become who God wants me to be, and I don't want that. I mean, I want the good stuff, but I don't want all the hard stuff that comes with it. So if things get worse in my life, I'll be back to church. But until then, I'm okay. That's rough. But every time I get tired and weary of this journey we're on, of being changed from who we used to be into who God wants us to be, and I feel like giving up, I see Carrie's face, and I hear her voice, and I realize she's not alone. In deciding that what we want is a God who can get us the things that we want, and we're willing to pray prayers of change and, and desperation when, when we're at the lowest points in our lives. But the question I have is, are we willing to not just go to that place? Are we willing to live in that place? Are we w- willing to live out of that place where we say, I, it, it doesn't matter the situation I happen to be in. It doesn't matter if I, I'm, I'm following better or worse right now in terms of my, my track record. What matters to me is that I have an ever-deepening relationship with God, that what I'm open to is God continually changing and transforming me, or have I decided that there's at least several parts of my life where it's good enough? It's good enough. I'm willing to let God change this and this and this about me, but he can't have this. This part of my heart belongs to me. We, we don't talk like that out loud, but I think we wrestle with that reality in our hearts that we decide that enough is enough, that we've given enough, that we've changed enough. And the challenge of the resurrection is this isn't about us and our ability to change ourselves. This is about us saying we want a loving, open relationship with a God whose constant dream for us is that we will be better to one another than we've ever been before. So I have to ask you, do you really want to be a part of that miracle? Are are you willing to keep working at letting God work on you and and in you and through you? Is, Is that something that you actually are open to? Because no one else can make that decision for you. And it begins with confession. It does. It begins with us telling the truth about ourselves and our desires and what we want and confessing that on our own, we make a mess of things every single time and that what we need is not just certain parts of our life to change, but we need new lives. We don't need certain parts of our heart to be changed. We need brand new hearts. And the only person, the only power that can do that is God. But then the challenge is, you don't just say that prayer once. You say it over and over and over again. Because it's not just something that happens overnight as much as we'd like for it to be. It's something that happens every single night and every single day and every single decision. We are at risk of choosing our heart over the new heart that God is trying to give us. It starts with confession. But it doesn't end there because we have to be willing time after time to make that confession, to begin again, and to believe that when we speak that truth, 
as difficult as it might be, that God's grace is stronger yet. So I want to close our, our sermon this morning by saying a prayer together. As Luke mentioned during communion, I think there are times in life where we know that we should say certain things, but we never quite get around to saying them. And I think there's power that comes from saying out loud, I struggle with sin, I have sinned, and I want to be different. So God, please help me be different. And so I'm going to read the words in white, and if, if you will, please respond with the words in yellow. Have mercy on us, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions, wash away all of our iniquity, and cleanse us from our sin. Forgive our desires to have our own way in all things, no matter who it hurts, no matter what it costs. Forgive us for being dishonest with you, ourselves, and with others. Forgive us for our failure to see our sin for what it is. We confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and the patience of our lives. We confess to you, Lord. We confess our self-indulgent appetites and ways and our taking advantage of other people. We confess our harsh judgment of others who have our same struggles and our envy of those who are more fortunate than ourselves. Please accept our repentance, Lord, for the wrongs we've done, for our blindness to human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned by our own fault, in thought, word, and deed, by what we've done and by what we've left undone. Restore us, Father, and let your anger depart from us. Accomplish in us the work and the joy of your salvation. Create pure hearts in us and help us resist temptation in the future. Help us to rise above our weaknesses and to grow stronger as Christians. In the saving name of your Son, we pray all of this. Now, I'm guessing for some of you that was uncomfortable. And I'm guessing that for some of you, the reason it's uncomfortable is you're worried we're becoming Catholic. <laughs> Don't take that out. There's all kinds of ways that we escape from having to say the things, the hard truth that we don't want to say about ourselves. And if you've never said those words in prayer to God, I want to challenge you, you, you need to speak the truth about yourself to God. And you need to trust that it's in that openness that transformation is made possible in you. you. You can't make it happen, but you can open yourself up to it. And it starts by telling the truth. And boy, we like to spin the truth even in prayer. To make ourselves look better to the God who doesn't just see what we do, but already sees why we do it. It starts with confession. But it continues through daily confession that we can't do this on our own.
that we don't just need our hearts changed a little bit. We need God to give us brand new hearts to change not only what we do, but to change why we do what we do, what, what longings we have, and to believe that God really will work that miracle in us if only we'll let it. Okay, we're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives are going to be standing in various places throughout this room. In fact, I'll ask those leadership couples to stand up right now, if, if they will, so you can kind of see where they're going to be. While we, we sing, they're there to be community to you. They're there to pray with you. They're there, if, if you want, for you to tell, to tell the truth about yourself, for you to confess. And in our, our churches, we don't have a lot of space for confession. I'm not asking you to come down here and confess in front of the whole church that, that you're the one sinner who slipped through the back door this morning. But I am saying that if you need to talk to a Christian couple about a struggle that you have or somebody in your life who has a struggle, please go to them as together we stand and sing.